I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. A Guinness advert fascinated me as a child. Don't look now, but I think we're about to be swallowed, one drink declared to the other an uneasy grin on its frothy cream head. I can recognise its discomfort. Like many people who've lived through the 60s, I feel that my memories of what happened then have been swallowed several times over. This disjuncture between memory and interpretation is not only an inevitable consequence of time passing, it's arisen because, as the hopeful, radical promise of the 60s became stranded. It was variously dismissed as ridiculous, sinister, impossibly utopian, earnest, terrible thing to be, uh, or immature. Running through the outer story of my own political radicalization is a troubled questioning of what it meant to be a woman long before women's liberation surfaced as a movement. Young women like myself on the nexus of popular culture and left politics were profoundly affected by the broader shifts in society. At the same time, our beliefs and activism meant that we were caught in an uncomfortable gap between the manifold aspects of femininity, our personal destiny, and a public discourse about democracy and equality. This divide was lived and experienced as a private discordance which seemed apart from politics, the contradictory personal perceptions which resulted and were working their way beneath the surface of many women's lives rarely appear in historical accounts of the 60s. And in the case of working class women and the growing numbers of Asian and Afro-Caribbean women workers who were becoming active in the unions and community politics, even less. Despite our very high fluting ideas about how we were going to transform ourselves and personal sexual relationships, we were so ignorant. I mean, I don't think anyone could imagine how ignorant we were who didn't live in those times. I mean, I, I wrote to some friend, Tony Kay, who's actually here, I knew from 1960. I said, this is after I'd lost my virginity. I said, um, is it, are you a virgin 
A, when the penis is inserted into the vagina. B, when you have an orgasm. Because I couldn't understand why there was such a fuss about this penis going in. And the, must, the orgasm must be the key, I thought. But I had no, no idea. But I met at university, fortunately, I met a very rational maths graduate, Bob Rothorn, who took me under control as far as knowledge about birth control because he was very good at calculating safe periods. And he found out about someone called Mary Adams, who was an unusually enlightened Fabian socialist doctor, this is about 1962, who would fit diaphragms for young unmarried women. I was so nervous when I arrived for my appointment that they thought I must be pregnant. A brisk, posh-voiced, Mary Adams reassured me by chatting away as she demonstrated how to squirt the jelly into the brown rubber diaphragm. Her mother had been a militant suffragette, and she had once waited in trepidation because, like Guy Fawkes, her mother had planned to blow up Parliament. <laughs> Unlike Guy Fawkes, however, she was never caught. You remind me of my friend Ellen Wilkinson, declared Mary Adams, shaking her head and washing her hands. I'd not heard of the red-haired, left-wing MP who led Funga marches then. But the idea of a long legacy of rebel women arrived with my diaphragm. <laughs> Freedom from sexual fear combined with political subversion. Always take it with you, Mary Adams admonished me <laughs> as I turned to go. Even if you just go for a walk in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> in 1963, we, I went on Aldermaston, the march for the campaign for nuclear disarmament, and a group of us, about a thousand of us, broke off to show where the regional seat of government was hidden, which was secret places that were there to preserve people who were the elite. And... When I got back to Leeds, which is where I came from, I wore my CND badge, which was briefly to be a declaration of wild extremity with pride. I had turned into a kind of collective outsider now. People fell away from me in WH Smith in Leeds. <laughs> we touched a twitchy nerve of state security and were denounced as hoodlums in the newspapers. My Tory father, on the other hand, responded with unexpected pride. He'd heard that the military police had been called to disperse us, and he hated them. <laughs> He'd no time for ban the bombers or pacifists, but he thought the invasion showed grit and moral courage. <laughs> My cousin Anne's laughing. <laughs> he remembers Lance Robotham. In the late 60s, the intensity of politics really accelerates. And people will know that was the time when Enoch Powell made this speech, the racist speech about uh, anti-immigration. I was really anxious about Powell. And I joined the International Socialists, which I stayed in for about uh, 18 months. But in, at that time, it seemed really important to be in some kind of coherent force, because we thought that some kind of fascist movement was going to arrive. And when I went to teach the, at the Further Education College, the 
the Port of London Authority messenger boys a few days after Powell's speech. They stood up as I entered, giving the fascist salute. We battled through the lesson, but there was no budging them. However, one boy, um, an ironic football enthusiast who usually seemed half asleep, was not having any of it. He'd been arguing every day at work on the docks non-stop. His quiet courage was impressive. It was him and me against the rest. I used everything I could fling at them, from the music they liked to appeals to human decency, and to ridicule at being taken for a ride by a man who was contemptuous of the working class. We argued for several weeks, and it was eventually to be the information on the flyer for a new radical newspaper called Black Dwarf, which Tariq Ali was editing, that dented their support for Powell. Along with the big picture of Powell in Nazi uniform, it revealed that he supported 3% unemployment as a solution to inflation. They were so enraged at this, these confident young workers, that they, um, he ceased to be their hero. Towards the end of 68, there were discussions about the position of women on Black Dwarf, and I was to, write, to do a, a women's Black Dwarf issue with Fred Halliday. Fred was appointed because he'd read Reich and knew about um, <laughs> psychology, and I, because I just kept on talking. I think. <laughs> anyway, I sat on my stool in the basement by the gas fire in uh, the Hackney communal house where I lived, writing furiously. Out came all the concentrated thoughts and impressions which had been unconsciously accumulating. It just boiled, they just boiled up. And I realized that I must write from my own observations and feelings. And that was quite a scary feeling at the end of 68, to write from your own subjective feelings. But that <coughs> wider cultural shift towards subjectivity was partly responsible because I'd been hearing it in the music ever since the Beatles sang Help at the end of 1965, and it joined to the outer world of politics already at that time in the politics of black power that was coming over from the States and influencing groups here. I'd read other combinations of the personal and the political in Simone de Beauvoir's writing and in Doris Lessing's novels, and Karen Horney's ideas about masculine hegemony had also been playing around at the back of my mind over the last year. I made a list. Me, hairdressing girl, Brentford Nylons, birth control, unmarried mothers, TUC, Usdor, Fords, women, striptease girl. And the words just splattered out onto the pages. I went to a women's group after a conference in 19, early in 1969 when we'd had a, a conference at Essex, a revolutionary festival, and it was really chaotic. And a group of us got very angry when we tried to talk about women's position. And afterwards, we had a women's meeting, which we decided we wanted to have simply women there because we didn't know really what we were talking about. We wanted the space to talk, the autonomous space to talk to try and work out things. I remember a member of the Tufnell Park groups who 
Cowley, as she then was, Sue O'Sullivan, and also an American, another American woman called Shelley Wirtis, who went back to the States. And I was really interested because they took an approach that was, not, was very strange on the left then, in which they were arguing that new relations in the family should not be following a revolution, but they were intent on making changes in the here and now. Along with their anti-authoritarianism and belief in participatory democracy, the North American women brought into the British women's liberation movement a belief in prefiguring a desired future in the way you organized. And they also possessed an openness to new realities and perceptions and a respect for knowledge rooted in experience. The influential new left thinker, C. Wright Mills, had argued the need to translate personal problems into social issues. And this concept was to have a particular relevance for women. I later went to a, a meeting of the Tufnell Park Group, and I know this sounds very funny, but all the meetings I'd ever been to were people in lines, as we are, and people behaved in a rather formal way and said, you know, I was the comrade at the back, and would the comrade at the back like to report on something or other? And this group wasn't like that. They were sitting in around in circles, and they were quietly cooperative, you could hear yourself think, and half-formed ideas could be developed collectively. The consciousness-raising approach of the early women's liberation groups could go badly wrong when a consensus coalesced into a perspective which could be hard to contest. It was actually hard to contest something if people said, I just feel it, you know, and what can you do? There's nothing to say, as if it's just felt. So there were problems. But in the early stages of the women's movement, when the anti-authoritarian insistence on everyone participating worked, it could be magic. So finally, as we prepared for the first Women's Liberation Conference, the movement I envisaged was to be an entirely new kind of politics. No leaders, no ego trips, no more sectarian disputes. In the words of a woman trade unionist, I discovered in the report of the 1968 Women's TUC Conference, we wanted more than the promise of a dream. What actually happened was to be in some ways much more than we initially imagined, and in some ways very much less, a paradox which holds true for many political and social grassroots movements. You said that... Um as you were writing that book, you got more and more bewildered at what you thought of as the coincidences that make up the fatalities of a very particular life. And that's what writing about one's own past does, why it's so exciting and also can be rather frightening. So what I want to say is that uh, meeting you in the early 70s and reading almost every word you've written ever since, is one of the fatalities of my life that's made my life what I wanted to be. And it's not such a coincidence, though. And why it's not such a coincidence is what you will find out from reading this book if you haven't read it, because it really is, I think, the very best account 
of why women's liberation had to emerge. It simply had to emerge when it emerged from all that ferment of the 1960s. So let's think, first of all, why do memories disappear so fast, like the contents of that bottle of Guinness? And, you know, what the 60s is, as you say, either idealized or demonized. You know, it's either joyful and good or all bad. And of course, especially for women, but actually also very much for men, it was not that. And so do you think this is something that happens always to historic in historical time or something particular about the 60s? At the time when I was writing this memoir, it did seem as though people had really lost interest in, in, in looking at movements from below. And now I, I feel that there's a new, there's some new spirit around and that there is suddenly this interest because by the time I was writing this, it would be the late 90s, I think because people, I think people want to get away from failure. If, if a movement hasn't achieved what it, it was hoped that it would achieve, then I think there's a way in which people don't really want to remember because they want to, I think there's a very strong tendency that people want to remember something that's good, you know, and not to remember a movement that didn't do this, at least the social and economic changes which we imagined would come through the women's movement. It did mean that it's been easier for women to, small, small groups of women to move up to a certain extent and do things that they would never have done, but not the, the vision of transformation which we'd imagined, in which all human relationships would, would change. And then you say a lot about sexuality and the dilemmas of, of trying to repudiate what we saw as the nonsense of all women should remain virgins and be saving themselves for marriage. When obviously everything we ever, every film we ever saw, everything we read was all about women being as sexy as possible. And, but as you say, we were comprehensively ignorant, but nevertheless often trying to live and relate differently to men. But then there was this strange thing that in the end, men often didn't want us to be living and relating differently to them. If you think of uh, Norman Mailer and his huge fears of men were going to lose out to the vibrator and so on. It was such an impossible contradiction, wasn't it? And I wonder if you feel we've got any further than uh, the mess we felt in then. Well, we it's have, not a definite as you get older, things change too. Um, <laughs> But I, I, it was really, I mean, it's, I, think what it's such, I think it must be very, very hard for someone who's in their 20s now to imagine the total ignorance. And <coughs> the, it was felt that somehow or other, if you didn't tell girls anything about sex, that it would keep them sort of pure and then they wouldn't get into trouble. But I mean, they still, I mean, for the younger people here, there were still homes for, you know, unmarried mothers. In fact, the, uh, when the women's movement started in Holland, the women went and carried flowers to the, to the homes of unmarried mothers in homage to the, to the women who'd had children out of marriage. But I mean, it was, it was still seen something that was very difficult, even within quite lefty 
circles was not totally easy. You could live together okay, but to have a child, I think, was the, 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 you know, the, the point when that closed up. Yeah, I'll come back to that. But, of course, wanting to keep women ignorant is exactly what Trump and various men on the right today are still wanting. You know, no sex education in schools, yes, trying to abolish rights to abortion. So those times, you know, are, always people are working. Certain people, particularly the rise of the right today, are working to try and bring them back. But let's get you I to... I just think sorry. that those... those social and cultural gains that we really did make in attitudes mm. are really, the right now, are really challenging those Absolutely. gains. Yes. And it's as though that territory is under attack. Anyway, let's get you to Oxford. And although in the 60s uh, a working class hero was something to be, it didn't seem to have quite penetrated Oxford, where you said even people on the left, and I could name them but I won't, would mock your northern Yorkshire accent. And so for a long time you felt very out of place. And also you were being taught British imperial history because um, as yet there'd been no big intervention. So of course that's exactly what um, many of the Tory party like Gove today would like us to be learning about in our history lessons in schools. But nevertheless, you get rescued by your encounter with the with those who had once been in the Communist Party, like uh, Richard Cobb and um, uh, Beryl and Bridget, sorry, Bridget and uh, Christopher Hill, and in particular then uh, Dorothy and Edward Thompson, exactly when Edward Thompson is writing the history of the um, <clears throat> English working class. And so introducing you to a completely new way of thinking about history, of looking at collective self-consciousness and relationships and work and communities totally different to the history that you were being taught then at Oxford. And so that's exactly what you're, you go on to use, isn't it, when you're thinking of women's history and what it is to capture an emergent consciousness historically. Perhaps you could say a bit more on that. Well, I, I went to, I was sent, firstly, I got sent to, um, because I wasn't doing very well because I was acting at university in my first year. I was nearly kicked out and then got rescued by uh, Bridget Hill, who, and through Bridget Hill, I got invited to Balliol parties and there were left people there. They're mainly posh lefties, actually. <coughs> less, some, one slightly less posh one, actually, was Chris Patton, who was <laughs> hanging around That's funny. Left, uh, unlike left some of the vanguard leftists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was not, it was the content of the history we did was very much, you know, from about the kings and the treasury and, and the state system. And I got sent to a tutor in Christchurch first, who was exceedingly right wing and didn't believe, he thought it was very terrible that Asa Briggs ever looked at newspapers. And he, he always called me Miss Lowbottom. <laughs> and he talked about my predilection for the boards because of acting. So that was hopeless. And then they, Beryl Smalley, who was a rather enlightened medievalist, decided it would be good for me to go off to... Uh, 
a crazy anarchist, actually. He wasn't, I don't think Richard Cobbett ever really was communist. He, oh, he was, okay. but he was a, a historian who loved chaos coming from below. He just delighted. I mean, he did later move to the right, but at the time when I went there, he, was sort of, he would sort of leap over the sofa and talk about the Spanish Civil War, and he was very, uh, he was very eccentric. And he one day said to me, you must go and see my friends who are these charters. They do his, they're always writing about charters, and they live in Halifax. And I went to the home of E.P. and Dorothy Thompson, and Edward was not in sight. And there was Dorothy, who was dressed in her kind of black turtleneck jumper that was a real sort of sign of being an alternative intellectual woman. <laughs> and... Uh, she, uh, I, she talked to me, and they had decided that Richard, who was a ne'er-do-well and hope nefarious person, had got me pregnant, and I was coming <laughs> to Never tell done. my woes to them. And Edward had gone into hiding in his study. <laughs> Dorothy went out and said, it's all right. <laughs> anyway. That's how I met the Thompsons, and then I, I, it became a second home because I would go on the bus from Leeds to Halifax and just read in this amazing library of history about the, the socialist movement and the, the kinds of movements that Edward and Dorothy were studying. Anyway, then you get your degree and you're with Bob, although you're also falling in love with various ethereal young men at the same time, so you have to deal with uh, those complexities. But once in, in um, Hackney, where Bob decides is the place for uh, you to move, you encounter what you describe as the solemn rituals of sectarian combat between the different <laughs> Trotskyist boots that you encounter, particularly when you join the Labour Party, the Labour Youth <laughs> Section, and they tell you things about who's right and who's wrong, and popular front, yes, united front, no, and you say how easy it would be it to get this wrong. Of course, it's the other. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends which trot you're talking to, doesn't it? But, um, but it was from you then I learned something about these different... Um, strange, uh, strange Yes, dissident Trotsky scripts, which yeah. is something that you retain, pondering about that, that would feed into Beyond the Fragments when we try, as we still try, to help unite the left-facing Thatcher in 1979, that account of what's wrong with the yeah. vanguardist party. I got from the, from the Thompsons, what was really important was I got this idea that there could be another kind of left and that it, it wasn't necessary to follow either the Communist Party trajectory or the Trotskyist trajectory, really. But then got immersed in Hackney Young Socialists because I thought if you're a socialist, you shouldn't just talk, you should do things. Okay. So I joined Hackney Young Socialists and it happened to be a place where militant and international socialists and other people were all arguing away among each other. And so most people who ever joined it always left. I used to look in hope some 
youth would come from Hackney and they would look like nice kind of normal people with longish hair and then they would hear all these people going on and it was all very incomprehensible. But it was something that it, it, it introduced me not only to left ideas, so I had to read a lot in order to argue with everyone, but it, it also meant that I understood about Trotskyism as an, an intense sort of inner process. And I got very interested, actually, in the history of Trotskyist groups. Although yeah, yeah. I gave up in the, about, I gave, I, I lost track in about the 18, 1980s. 19, you had a pretty good sense of it, though. But you also, in terms of your political outlook, talk about the importance of CND and from CND and the you know the rise and, and partial collapse of CND thinking about the movement yes, yes. the, the yes. significance of relating movements to party politics to trying to influence the left of the labor party although the labor party remains so passive as you uh, found apart from those trotskyists trying to take it over but really mainly trying to destroy each other but that also is surely something which has remained with you with me and no doubt many of us to this day, how one actually tries to build coalitions on the left. Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. And we wanted, when we did Beyond the Fragments, this is jumping ahead, but we really wanted the understandings that we'd gained through the women's movement to be something that would be our contribution back into the left. And we wanted other rank and file grassroots movements to come with their experiences. So we wanted to turn it around that the understanding and theorizing was coming out of the experience of movements rather than from somebody yeah. sitting there dictating mm. to people mm. what they should mm. be thinking. Mm. Yes, and also from Vietnam Solidarity Campaign where there as elsewhere you're, you're still thinking about this problem of also being a woman on the left and that becomes particularly clear in Vietnam Solidarity Campaign where it's always the boys who are up there on those platforms talking and you give an account of trying to uh, talk to them about how to raise money for the campaign and you said as you speak it's as though a plane through, flew overhead, there's a complete silence and then they carry on with what they were saying before you spoke, and Henry Waters, the husband of Michelle, uh, Rochelle Waters, Shelley Waters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, says, Rochelle. introduces yeah. you to the concept of um, male chauvinism. Yes, Why did, did that disappear? <laughs> we don't still use that word, but it's Ma a long lost, male chauvinism. You hadn't term. heard that before. A, no, I didn't know about any. He, this was 1967, I think. When yes, I met this Henry. is um, and I, um, 67. I hadn't met Shelley and the Tuffle, she was involved in the Tuffle Park group or anyone there, but the, the Americans who came over were a very important influence, both the women and the men, and they were several years ahead in terms of rec you know, recognizing the existence of the women's movement. And Henry himself had a, a very interesting political past. He'd, he'd been a sort of connection point between the old left and um, the new left in, in the States. He was dressed in a sort of hippie style at the back of the meeting and I was trying to say to the guys, we need to have a jumble sale because we haven't got any money. 
And they were thinking this uh, jumble sale, you know, reformism, I think they thought reformism. <laughs> but they were so stupid because we needed to get some money and we could do a jumble sale. We'd, I'd done jumble sales in the Labour Party. I knew how to do them. And I was offering to do it and they still kept ignoring. Anyway, they then said, after they finally said yes, they, that we could have a jumble sale, they never did organise that place that they said they would. They, that was meant to be their thing. <laughs> Me and my friend Mary had it in our house in Montague Road. <laughs> the like, well, I wanted to talk about But that. Henry oh, did explain to me that what was happening, it was not just that people were irritated because I kept <coughs> talking. It was because there was this thing that happened and it was called male chauvinism, <laughs> in which women got cut out and yeah. people forgot that they'd said anything and things like that. That's so it was absolutely, I can't tell you, it was absolutely amazing to hear that this was not just some personal thing about... Wanting you to shut up. Yes. <laughs> so back in that house in Montague Road, which interestingly was a time to recall when Ordinary people could buy a house in inner London, and you and, and Bob ended up buying a house, but of course not charging rent, but everyone would put in a pound towards collective uh, bills and a pound towards political activity of one's choice, no doubt, <laughs> like that uh, jumble sale. So those ideas of collective living are also something which have all but disappeared, partly because they've almost had to disappear because it's so hard to get large housing that people <laughs> could live in, uh, let alone pay the bills through uh, collecting one pound <laughs> from whoever lived there. But uh, it's an interesting time Our economic to failure was that we never thought about repairs to the house. <laughs> this was a missing thing. So the house did actually gradually disintegrate. <laughs> and I can see lurking in a corner one of the members of this collective house with his head more or less kind of thing. This is Nigel Fountain who introduced very strict rota when, when the hippies were finally moved out. Order came. So we did right. have some. We did have some central uh, order with the rotor for tasks and shopping and things. I mean, another thing that's also clear from your writing is how aware that there was a lot of class politics going on in the sixties, as in your teaching of the apprentices, who in the end go on the anti-Vietnam War march, don't they, many of them, yes. and complain because they don't notice you on it amongst the hundred well, thousand people no, who no, were they, there. They were fed up because it divided and it, the militants went to uh, have to fight with the police and the bulk of us, Tariq and all of us, we went into this to the orderly, we went on the orderly bit and my apprentices who'd been <laughs> supporting Enoch Powell not long ago said, where were you? <laughs> because I hadn't gone on the militant. A really interesting bit. Anyway, so then in 68 you join Black Dwarf, which Tariq Ali is editing, where you meet Sally Alexander, who will remain in. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details important influence and friend in your life and you know still there's this same problem of being a woman on the left and the undertone of sexism everywhere you know when uh, particularly when a couple of people decide they've got to spruce things up with porn and pin-ups and so on and this doesn't actually appeal to you so one of the first group of group meetings of women there is in the toilet. You often seem to end up in the ladies' toilet uh, in those early days before women's liberation has uh, actually emerged. And why, in fact, you'll leave Black Dwarf, which is interesting, is because they start to think of students as the vanguard, because in 68, that's when you've got the occupations, and um, you object to the fact that they are now saying students are the vanguard. You don't think we should be thinking in terms of vanguards. And meanwhile, when you go off to speak to some of those vanguards at LSE, for instance, in your miniskirt, they heckle and roar at you for wearing a miniskirt as you try and talk about the importance of FE colleges and the underfunding of FE colleges. And when you're in the next year, in 69, you go off to talk to um, the students in Essex, again, they throw toilet paper at you and things like that. So it's not so easy still being a woman on the left then, is it? No, it, we had small groups in 69 in Britain, and those small groups were really important. And we, we were beginning to, to get stuff from America, but it was quite small still until after the first conference in 1970 in, in Oxford. The, the question of the pinups and the black dwarf is a little confusing because I am afraid there are several errors in my book. I'll have to confess to you this. One is Which that, I've repeated. One is that I said that Nigel Fountain was one of the people who suggested to Clive Goodwin that there should be pinups. And, and David Widry. It was David Widry, I think, in a joke. It would have been. And it would have been David Widry making a joke, I think. But I got very, very angry about it and wrote a, a very angry poem that I stuck on the walls. But on the other hand, I did feel very ambiguous about the whole issue of pornography and nakedness and imagery because we hated, one of the things we stuck stickers against was the very cheesy sort of adverts that were becoming very prevalent in the, in the late 60s. And they, they were really so kind of contained. I mean, it was a sexuality that was formed by co commerce, and we loathed it. 
But on the other hand, we were really committed to sexual freedom, a lot of us. And some of this, the stuff that was shown in, in the underground at uh, concerts and things was really what could be defined as pornography. And the women who were working on the underground papers had to really think about that and discuss it. And without wanting to just dismiss all types of sexual imagery, we were really struggling about how do you think about the presentation of women. And I, I think that still is really a problem. How do you steer? <laughs> Mm. Actually, Sue O'Sullivan wrote a very brilliant article about that in relation to lesbian sexuality in the 1980s in Feminist Review. Upsetting the apple cart. Yes, mm. upsetting the apple cart. It was really interesting. I think I better probably just have one last question so we can open to the floor. But at the end of 68, as you say, Tarek suggests you actually write something for Black Dwarf and they produce the year... You produced the Year of the Militant Women, talking to the wife of the seaman who'd been uh, campaigning for better conditions for the fishermen, and also the Audrey Wise writing on the equal pay for Ford workers, and then you writing about something which seems to me is, is as significant today as it was then, although it seemed for a while to improve, and that is how we combine as women working lives with raising children and with care in general. This is the one issue that seems to me is no more solved today than it was then, although for a while things seemed to get a bit better. So I wanted, I thought perhaps you could comment on that. But also, when you talk about in 1969, you leave Black Dwarf, you leave IS, and you want to be a part of this different space and different politics which women's liberation is going to, to produce and create in small groups where we can all listen to each other, we can all be heard, we'll have no leaders, we'll have no sectarianism, there'll be time and space to think about our visions of the future. What happened to that idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, we... we we did it partially, and we did it, I think, fairly successfully for at least about five years. And then things began to get frayed. And the issue that they got frayed around really was the relationship to men and whether we were connected to men politically or personally or whether we were going to be completely apart from men and saw men as the main key problem really. Those of us who eventually ended up being called socialist feminists, who'd been part of women's liberation, were arguing that we thought that the position of women was something that's connected to the oppression of other groups of people too. And we wanted to look at all those together. But other people said that's wrong because women always get pushed to the back and we need to focus primarily on women. And then that caused differences because sometimes women were saying, we don't want men to come in support of us on the Women's Liberation March. And those of us who did think men should come would be saying that we wanted them to come. And so that, that because we didn't have a system by which we could make centralized decisions, 
what happens, and it's a very common problem in participatory democracy, I think, is that people would, with one lot would turn up, make a decision, then the next week another lot would come and make a decision until people got so cross and fed up. And so we did discover that our ways of trying to be democratic did <coughs> themselves contain some problems. Yes. Um, and that it isn't an easy to create an absolute alternative. I think that's what happened to us. But it still, still was possible to, to remember that we'd organized in that different way and carry that memory on into other things that we'd were involved with. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of other tensions arose, particularly in more morbid times with the success of Thatcher and with left hopes being rolled back. Then you also got not only debates over men and sexuality coming to very much to the fore and the sex wars of the 80s, but also all sorts of other identity con conflicts around, um, in particular, race and other issues. But I think maybe we'd better open it up and that might come back. I'm quite interested in the State of the Union movement at the moment. Uh, it feels to me like it's definitely in decline. And I was just wondering whether you'd be uh, like able to elaborate at all on the relationship between the women's liberation movement and the union movement at the time, and whether that has any bearing on the situation today. We really wanted to have as strong as possible connection. And I remember that the one of the the meetings to plan the 1970 conference, I was plugging away to ask a woman called Audrey Wise to come. We, Audrey was, a, was to become, she did come and speak at the 1970 conference, but she got involved. She was a former Trotskyist, actually, who'd gone into the Labour Party and was not initially totally sympathetic to women's liberation, but because she came into contact with us, she changed. And she eventually became a Labour MP who was arrested at Grunwick's. And she became this important connection. There was another woman called Gertie Roche in Leeds who was one of the leaders of the clothing workers' strike and who was also a friend of Claudia Jones, the Black woman who came from... Um, uh, well, she originally from the Caribbean, mm -hmm. but then from the States and was a, a very important figure in the development of black groups in Britain and the Notting Hill Carnival. And that connection is interesting, that predated women's liberation. But the, the connections are things that I think historians who look in a superficial way often miss. And the connections are, are just all the time because <laughs> the, the immediate thing to do is you get a women's liberation group in Sheffield and they went off to talk about the need for free contraception at the factory gates. And the women really joked because they said to uh, the women from Sheffield, they said, you know, six o'clock in the morning, you must be joking. <laughs> but so we, we were very keen and zealous, but we perhaps didn't always go about it in the best way. And I think the ways in which the connections came was through, first, through to, in the unions, it was through women campaigning for women's liberation through their own unions, which happened slightly later, sort of 74-ish, and also the rise of community activism, in which there were lots of women who were very committed to grassroots community activism in terms of housing and 
co-ops, um, food co-ops and things like that, who worked in local communities. Yes, also, just as the 60s has been written out of much history, even more so, I think, so as the 70s and the women's liberation movement and our emergence out of the left. If you read Lorna Finlayson in the latest New Left Review, it's as though feminists never knew anything about class, apart from Angela Davis. And so, you know, we also have to keep retrieving our memories to try and uh, think about what happened. But I'm going to take comments from a few people now, since we haven't got much time. You're mentioning the phrase male chauvinism feels, <laughs> takes me back, because yeah. it's not a phrase that we use now. That's right, I couldn't remember. Uh, no, 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 but it, how interesting, because <laughs> what it made me think of is uh, how feminists more recently have theorized around patriarchy. And that theorizing has enabled us to maybe move on from that dichotomy that you're describing of men being in one place and women and those things that divided, I think, the, the women's movement through the 70s. You know, should, you know, should boys be allowed into the creche and all that sort of stuff that we got so heated yeah. about, which was some because we didn't have, yes, yeah, some of us, and some of us said, oh, God, for God's sake, you know, it's not here nor there. But I wondered what you felt about about that theorizing around patriarchy and how that has moved us on. I wonder. Just at the time in the 70s when you're kind of part of uh, IS and also thinking about local activism, so, oh, sorry, um, I mean, you know, reflecting upon those international socialist groups, but also like bridging the, with the women's movement, thinking about a kind of new form of politics. I, I guess my question is, what was the society uh, that you were imagining? What were the kind of, uh, was it was it Britain? Was it Europe? Was it uh, something broader than that? Uh, uh, or imagining it from the kind of grassroots activism that you were doing? Two questions, comments. Um, Sheila, at the end of your talk, you, you alluded to something that made me think of Joe Freeman's notion of the uh, tyranny of structurelessness in the in the feminist movement at least in America would you uh, would you apply that to the British uh, scene as well was it uh, you know I mean it's it's a it was an it's an early critique yeah, of a super de democratic horizontal forms of um, organizing which some people have also now attached to uh, Occupy and others. And the second question actually comes from uh, Lynn Siegel's um, uh, comment. W would you agree that, well both of you, would you agree that sort of class has been written out of uh, more contemporary versions of Feminism. I mean, I spend time in America, and I feel that intersectionality has written class out. It's actually focused on everything other than class. <laughs> Would you agree? Thank you. It was following on from what you said in a way. I wondered what you you thought about you know feminism now, because it seems to me there are kind of you know fissures and rifts and schisms within it. What has happened to feminism? Not just the feminist project, but you know you're talking about feminism in America, where you know where class has been kind of superseded. There are lots of things, I guess, in this country as well. And I just wonder what you want to say about feminism like now. You know, Sheila. Well, I sort of begin with you because I. I formed a friendship with a woman who was a socialist feminist from India called Radha Kumar, who I met, I think, about seven, late 70s. 
And through Radha, I heard that that she she'd been in some sexual politics resistance faction of the international Marxist group in, them, in Delhi, and they'd had the same arguments and things. So that was the amazing weird thing about the Trotskyist little groups that they were internationalist, and the, our internationalism followed that kind of internationalism. I think we didn't, we were concerned to, to be connected to feminists in other countries and to left movements in other countries, but we didn't see that necessarily in terms of how race was been talked about in the States, because there, there was connections anyway, there were global links to con connections. And I feel that class has vanished and I I get exasperated by this. I again I've just found uh, that a book has recently been written on uh, class and, and women's liberation movement which I can't remember it's by a man and I can't remember his name but it was it's quite interesting. So that's a good sign that somebody is making that connection because um, it was the actual opposite in the 1960s that everybody would talk about class and never mm. talk about mm. race mm. or homosexuality, mm. women. Mm. It was, or certainly not trans. I mean, mm. there was no way in which you could kind of get through. It was just seen where you'd get class sorted out and then these other things all follow and we would be battering our heads against that. But on the other hand, the, the things that have actually happened to working class people <coughs> have been so extreme and dire in the, the period since 19, certainly 1979. And those experiences are ones that remained hidden and I think feed into a very deep bitterness in working class communities, which becomes a kind of negativity against the possibility of any optimistic change. It's a very deep feeling of being abandoned, really. And it's a deep anxiety to me that people recognize that these connections have existed in the past and they, they are really important. I, I don't agree with the concept of patriarchy. I've written about this since 1979. I find it ex another exasperating idea because I think it presents a vision of a, a fixed notion of male power which doesn't show the fact that there have been enormous distinctions. I mean, if you were an, an Anglo-Saxon woman, you had a much better deal than you did when the Normans came. You know, There has been variations of the male chauvinism or whatever it should be called, the male dominance that has existed in every recorded society that we know of. But I don't see patriarchy and talking about patriarchy as a very helpful way to get through that because I think it presents a notion of a fixed structure which exists apart from history. And some of us disagree profoundly. <laughs> <laughs> For different reasons, though, you guys. Yeah. You, you it's like it's patriarchy. It's not fixed. It's not fixed. It's not fixed. <laughs> Relational, yes. Well, I agree in the relational, yeah. relational, yes. <laughs>
about how we saw the future, was it very European based? Initially, we, the women's movement was in some ways, but actually I noticed Anna Davin came in at the back yeah. and I remember there was the um, history shrew very early on, I think, is it 1969, yes. 70? And that was about international women's struggles, but it was as we, we, we saw things in terms of movements of resistance in which women took part, which were anti-imperialist movements. Solidarity. And there's that extraordinary piece by Mary Kelly in that issue yes. on women's liberation and national liberation. Yes, yeah. And it's, it's, worth, it's really worth looking at again, actually, if you have access to it. There was... Small women's groups that formed very in Islington. There was a small women's group that was actually a, like a Black Panther group too. So there were that was very early, but I don't know what happened to that group. It met in Islington. Yeah, I remember. Anyone else burning to say something? But can I just add that the main way that Asian and Caribbean women came in contact with women's movement was through the through the practical activity rather than the, the consciousness-raising groups. And that was the same with working-class white women, actually, that whatever we did, it wasn't very... They didn't seem to want to come and sit talking. Although Essex Road Women's Centre, I think, did do women's health, and they yeah. and that did talk... was a way of talking yeah. about personal... But we did talk about racism in schools and the sus laws and also anti-immigration struggles. We're trying to deport wives whose husbands had left them or something else had happened to the husbands. There, there was a lot of activism went on around anti-racism, but then race gets theorised differently from the 80s as a type of... You know, post-colonial consciousness that becomes another issue. So from the kind of feminist organising spaces I've been in, in Sheffield and Cambridge mostly, um, legacy, it's called, like people talk a lot about legacy work and kind of the, the politics of remembering and how we need to acknowledge and um, respect our indebtedness to the women became, who came before in those organising spaces and kind of opened them up to us. And it's always presented as a very kind of liberatory thing. But I feel like it can often be used actually to blinker us as, as well. And I was just wondering, because I, I feel like a lot of what you've written hinges on the misreputation misrepresentation since and kind of what gets remembered and what doesn't how do you feel like the legacy of the women's lib movement has most been skewed kind of i suppose it's really nice if people are interested in what we did and and do want to look into it but don't don't get too bothered about it just get on with things because we've all got a bit tired as we've got older so I, I, it's very important that there's new ones around uh, I remember reading Women's Consciousness Men's World and I really loved when you quoted uh, The Velvet Underground against Simone de Beauvoir 
and uh, I just wondered if you had any other like songs or music that takes you back to the 60s and 70s. I, I mean, I realised when I was reading it again that there are quite a f there are quite a, there is quite a lot of references to music, and I mean, music was all around, and sometimes at full volume and driving me crazy because I lived with a wooden door dividing me between various musicians who were playing music, and I was trying to write my thesis on working class adult education in the nineteenth oh, century. Oh yes, I forgot about that, but. Uh, I, I, the, yeah, music was part of our feelings. I mean, it, I hadn't realized until I, I read some book about the Beatles when I was doing this book, and everything I thought was, you know, some original thought that I'd had, I was realizing, well, it's actually there in quite a lot of the songs, you know, that we were taking stuff in unconsciously from an ethos and the underground and the, um, the culture that was around us was really important because it was expressing inner kinds of aspirations for some other way of being, which was part of what we were saying from a political point of view. We wanted another way to be in society and in relation to other people. You also, when you talked about, and I remember well how ignorant we were about sex, because we have no language particularly and we still have little language really that feels good to talk about women's bodies and you talked about rightly the influence of Bessie Smith, Juliet Greco and forgotten the other one you mentioned that don't they're not altogether helpful but they are sexy and raunchy at least yeah. they were new you know they could turn us on even if trying to develop that language to describe women's desire and women's sexuality was so hard to find. I think it's still fairly hard to find, actually. I don't know if people know what, I mean, Juliet Greco was very <laughs> slender and dark. I longed to look like Juliet Greco. It was completely hopeless, as I was kind of always sort of curvy and gingerish and Smith. freckly. <laughs> Odetta was another one. Yeah. She was bigger, Odetta. We had, we sort of snatched women from yeah. the past because we didn't know, we didn't really know who we, we could relate to. And our sense of ourselves didn't really fit uh, things that even somebody, you know, in an, an earlier generation like Simone de Beauvoir was writing. So I do, I do think that every generation has to make a women's movement again. But on the other hand, it is I'm a historian, and I love to find out what people were doing in the past. I just delight in that. Uh, this this might contradict what you just said uh, about not being too dutiful about remembering the past. But do you think that, I mean, just, just uh, thinking about the present in light of the Me Too moment in feminism, do you think this is actually a good moment in, for feminism to be to sort of rediscover the insights of the women's movement from the 60s and 70s? That in a way there's been a rediscovery, to use your word, of male chauvinism. It's sheer fact, a, women, a generation of women who thought we had dealt with yeah. it yeah. are some, again faced with this bald fact again. I don't know. 
Well, the, the forms of it that were described by people through the Me Too movement were so grotesque and horrific, actually. I mean, we had problems, but there was also, there was some kind of protective ideas about how people should behave. And the, the, the behavior, I mean, how people, I think probably that people in the theater and in films, that women were always very vulnerable. But it was very, perhaps very surreptitious and secret, whereas nowadays it, it seems to be, it's become so blatant and that that aroused the initial anger. But, I mean, I felt angry before women's liberation developed. And when, as soon as we started talking to one another and felt that power of collectivity and being able to think through things together, I ceased to feel that, that rage. And I, I think it's really hard because if you have just anger, you don't actually create something. You can denounce, but you don't make something new. So I don't quite know. Anger is something that starts but you need to find something else. You need to find a power that can hold on to yourself and link up with other people and be able to face people without just defying. I don't know if that's very I'd like very to coherent. add something about the context as well. I mean, we're living in a time of enormous anger and resentment, which is being encouraged and, of course, always racialized, among other things. But in your book, Sheila, there's an amazing account of the attempted rape that you experienced from an Algerian worker in which you're, at the very same time as it's happening and you're fighting it off, it's the most extraordinary account of a rape and its aftermath, rather different from Edward Louis, but with overlaps to his account of being raped as a gay man. You're aware when suddenly it the rape, you make him laugh and the rape doesn't happen. And then he becomes more protective of you and you see the contempt with which he is seen with a white woman. It's, it's you know, you are trying to contextualize that very incredibly, almost violent experience that has happened. It was a violent experience. Yes. I mean, uh, now I think, good heavens, I have to be able to cope with this. But I, I was, um, I mean, partly it was my ignorance, I think, my complete ignorance about, yeah. and I was of so... danger. I was so determined. Well, yes, and I had been this sort of lower middle class Leeds thing. You must be polite. So <laughs> I, I, I... Please don't do this. <laughs> no, I, I, he, he, I met him because I was trying to find a trunk that my father and mother had sent from Turnbull's in Leeds. So I ended up in a place which was being built up uh, at the edge of Paris. And, uh, and I asked an elder woman the way, and, and she handed me over to this young man. And I began to feel anxious because he kept sort of taking me and trying to get me to drink alcohol. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. And I would have a coffee. So I had a black coffee and uh, this went on and I was getting very anxious about finding my trunk. So that this, this saga developed into which he presumably <laughs> assumed that I was interested in him. I was, didn't know how to get away. And uh, I, anyway, I got And you were speaking in French. 
Yes, I, I must say the French, it was fairly early on in my time in Paris when I was uh, 17. So the French was, school French was suddenly coming into my head. Anyway, context matters, that's all. I, I just wanted to ask you what you were saying about channeling anger. And you feel that in this current day, that should be easier than ever to do with social media. But we are facing a period of Trump and Bolsonaro and right-wing populist men where abortion rights are being rolled back, where a woman yeah. in America is now being prosecuted of the death of her unborn baby because she yeah. was shot in the stomach. Yeah. And it feels like so you, that we should have a greater call to action. And social media feels to me like an echo chamber and that just to say it is enough and it isn't actually leading to the action that it should. How There's do you feel about it? Also that? such pressing need. I mean the the situation of our health service, the situation of education for care, care. class care, every aspect of any basic <coughs> social democratic welfare is being assailed. That's right. And at the same time there is this terrible poverty of people in Britain who are working, people who are actually working going to food banks which you all know about. And I think there's a terrible way in which you find, or one finds, that you can't, you just can't take it in. I mean, I end up sometimes hearing reports of suffering to the extent that I just, I feel like curling up because I don't know what to do about it alone. But Val remembers working with Kumari Jayawardena, who wrote on feminism and nationalism in the third world in wider. And Kimari once said to me, you know, you in the West, you've got this idea of the fist, but we have this idea of the open hand, of passing on power, and somehow, perhaps that's the way to get the anger to go outwards into something collective, which can then be created into how movements arise. But to say how it is that a movement actually coalesces and arises seems to be very difficult and it doesn't always come because there's so many things going wrong. How it arises and forms coalitions in order to try and get some of those things changed, I'd say. Okay, thank you Sheila. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.